On the night of his 20th birthday, Rob Stokes decided to start his first business called Quirk, named after his cat sitting beside him that night. His entrepreneurial career is filled with grit, determination, and lots of sacrifice that led to various successes and a few wild stories of failure and near-death experiences. In this episode, Rob talks about eating only carrots for two straight weeks to save money so that his business could survive. He tells me about a financial director who faked ovarian cancer and stole from one of his other businesses, and how one piece of paper thrown in a trash can kick-started his entrepreneurial endeavors. My name is Nick Haradambas, and I don't want to keep you waiting any longer. So remember, it's not over until it's over. Welcome back to It's Not Over. I'm excited to talk to Mr. Rob Stokes, who I've known for a very long time and have not been fortunate enough to work with ever, but a lot of people that I know recommended you for this show. So Rob, welcome and thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me, Nick. Okay, Rob, you are an exceptional storyteller and you do love to tell stories. So tee me up for this one because I love your business quirk or your old business quirk and a variety of other things you've done. So what are we going to be talking about today? Which business? Give me some context. Yeah, thanks, Nick. So your brief to me was we want to talk about near-death experiences of business. And so I, I sat down and, and looked at now 23 years of business experience and, and try to pull out some examples. But mostly what I realized is that starting a business is a near-death experience. I mean, I, we, I was always close to death. Uh, it, it feels like if you're not, then you're not trying hard enough. I mean, I think there's pinnacles of that. There's, there's times when, when you may be on life support. But I ran Quirk for 15, 17 years, depending how you look at it. And I felt like we were close to death at all times. But I, I've got three particular stories with Quirk, uh, which was the business I started in my third year of business science in 99. And then I have another one of a business that I didn't start, but I took over, which is the, the Red and Yellow School, which was a near-death experience that was caused from the outside. Two of them, in fact. And so I'm happy to talk you and your listeners through those five experiences. Awesome. Okay, so before you do that, something you said immediately makes me want to ask you a question. And it, it kind of harks to uh, Jeff Bezos's It's Always Day One, that uh, quote or that theory from Amazon. Yep. Do, did you force yourself to always feel like it's near death? Like, was that just how you like to operate? Or did you legitimately think in your broken entrepreneurial brain that no matter how well your business was doing, you were always about to die? No, I think that, I mean, look, there were, there were a couple of moments in the last 20 years that were short where we weren't going to die. But I think for me specifically, I'm very ambitious. I, I always want to do things that are on the edge of my own capabilities. And I don't really care about money. And near death in business involves really running out of money. I mean, that's what it is. And so I, it never really bothered me to personally not have money. As you'll see through a couple of my stories, it does bother me when I inflict that possibility on, on someone else. Yeah, but that's kind cool. of how I see it. Okay, so tell me, we're going to start with Quirk. It's like, how big is it at this point? Give me the context, if you're happy to share revenue, yeah, um, size, yeah, yeah. all of that, and how Quirk makes money. So at this point, nobody knows what Quirk is, so give us the lowdown. Quirk was my first business. Well, my first official business, I started 17 of them while I was at school, and they mostly <laughs> shut down. They were always dead. But Quirk started in 99. I was in my third year of business science at UCT. I just saw this internet thing. I just wanted to be a part of it. I didn't really have a plan. I had an, uh, an incredible experience having a guest lecture by Mark Shuttleworth. 
And I looked at him and I thought, if he can do it, so can I, which obviously was a wildly mistaken <laughs> uh, thought to have. But nevertheless, I, I saw this business without a plan. And, and I can say that the first five to seven years was an ongoing near-death experience because at first we didn't have a plan. I literally came up with the idea on the 18th of Feb, 99. On the 1st of March, 99, I sold a computer to my best mate, and that's how the business started. And for uh, until at least 2005, we had no money. And we were trying to be a digital marketing agency before anyone cared about that. And I, I remember clearly going and seeing First National Bank in the early 2000s and telling them, that uh, they should, that it was very important to get their site to the top of Google and that I could do it for them. And their head of marketing or media, I think she was at the time, literally laughed me out of the office. It was one of my most awkward meetings of all time. What was super cool was about four or five years later, that same person called me back and said, yeah, we'd like to get to the top of Google. And I, I kind of wanted to say, if we'd done this five years ago, it'd be so much easier. But we, we, Nick, we had no money. I mean, if my wife listens to this podcast and the story I'm about to tell you, she'll cackle because she thinks it's hilarious. But I once ate nothing but carrots for two weeks because carrots are extremely cheap and quite nutritious. I'm already an orange person and I went a bit more orange, so that was a mistake. There was a moment when myself and I had three business partners at the time. We met at the one chap's house on a Saturday morning to discuss the fact that we were running out of money. And the two things I remember about that meeting, the first was the awful smell when we walked into his house. I won't mention his name because he'd be embarrassed, but we, we asked him, what is the smell? And he said, I've taken all the food in the house and put it in a pot, including eggs. And that's enough food for four to five days. And after that, I start the starvation process. And, and we worked out that within, I don't know, it's like a week or 10 days or something. If we didn't get any money in, that was it. Even though as shareholders, we weren't that fussed about earning money. And, and often six months would go by without us earning any money. And then we'd get a little pittance. But that, that was, we had, I think, two staff, and that was the date that we weren't going to be able to pay them. And as I think just, the, you make your own luck, or luck just happens, but the day before that money ran out, we got a contract from Kido International, a kid's clothing company, to rebuild their website. It was the biggest project we'd ever landed at the time, and it saved our ass. So, uh, and I haven't actually seen him in ages, but I, I remained close uh, to the founder of that business for many years, and I, eventually I told him the truth that without that uh, deal, we would be broke. And uh, he was quite chuffed to hear it, actually. And we, we, we had a, a relationship with that company of, of longer than 10 years. So it, was, it, it, it worked out quite well. But yeah, I mean, just getting the business off the ground was, was an absolute nightmare. Um, but we didn't really care. Actually, nightmare's not the right word, because it, it was fun. But it was just a nightmare from a cash perspective and where we did have staff. There was a few awkward conversations. And look, we had, I think, you know, at most at that point, like, maybe 10 or 15 staff and they were all kind of on for the ride and and we never didn't pay anyone but we often paid a couple of days late or something like that and they were very understanding and we made it up to them in in whatever ways we could if if there was a little windfall so that was kind of the first near-death experience okay so some some questions that uh, spring to mind from there you mentioned at some point in that story that you would go six months without getting a new client or getting any money in and I don't, I don't know if maybe you're being a little bit playing with the truth there, but even if it was four months, like five months, what on earth made you continue to go forward? Six months with no income is basically, okay, well, there's no business here. Why did you just keep pushing? I, I boil it down to this. So my, my core business partner, who, who him and I worked together from, he joined in, I think, 2001 until the end when we sold the business, and we still are, are very close. Craig and I have something in common 
Uh, we have lots of differences. We're fundamentally different people. Like he's the most pessimistic person. I'm the most optimistic. Thank goodness for Craig. But what we wanted more than anything else was an adventure and we didn't care about the money. And so with Craig and myself at the center of that mission, it, as long as I wasn't actually going to physically die of starvation, it didn't really bother me. Look, I was in my early 20s. Carrots were cheap. Beer was also cheap. And so it was just a super cool, fun time. And I had a bad ginger ponytail, and that's never a good new business tactic. So maybe we could have done better and had less fun. But I've never been one to put on a suit and, and schmooze my way to the top. So that was and, part of the ride. And, and, and the truth is that it didn't end because of something we did. I mean, we were in the right place at the right time. But that period of, of, of financial destitution, uh, which was definitely the hardest financial, that ended because the internet became a reality. And, and really, it was Facebook. Our clients suddenly were on Facebook. Their moms and their grannies were on Facebook. And suddenly, what we'd been preaching is, hey, this internet thing is really important for your brand suddenly they felt it was important to their brand and suddenly the business took off and we entered into a world of a whole different set of near-death experiences. Yeah, that reminds me, before I jump back to you and Craig, it reminds me of Paul, one of Paul Graham's essays, uh, How Not to Die. And in it, he says the surviving startups, uh, the successful startups are the ones that survive. And I think what you're actually saying is you kept Quirk alive long enough for the internet to catch up to your vision, for the clients to catch up to the internet being important to your vision. And as long as you're having fun and adventure, then you hang out and you survive. And that's, that's cool. A hundred percent. Nick, I, I work with a lot of founders. That's kind of what I like doing. And that's something I say to them all the time. Like job number one is to survive because... If you survive and you've got a reasonably valuable product and you're really customer focused and you are a nice person, you'll be fine. You just got to get the surviving bit going. Everything I think, if, if you've got something that's valuable and you listen to customers, those are important things. It's what, it might not be valuable in the moment. You need to listen to the customers. You know, I think the businesses that don't survive are the ones that try and over plan, um, which is the most common first time business entrepreneur mistake is I don't want to... I don't want to fail, and I don't want to let my customers down, so I'm going to plan everything. But the problem is planning incurs costs, even if it's just yourself not earning a salary. And so getting yeah. into the customer space, learning, turning that around quickly, and just being a decent person who's fun to hang out with, the rest kind of takes care of itself. I heard there's a quote that I used to use that I've now replaced with the, the latter one. The quote was, plans are useless, but planning is essential. And... I used to like that because, yeah, like plans, planning is important and plans aren't always useful. But the one I prefer is the map isn't the terrain. Yes. It's good to have a map, but when you're walking the terrain, a tree might be falling in, into your way and then you have to move. And I like that for startup founders. The map isn't the terrain. Have a map, but walk the terrain. Um, and yeah, I like that. 100%. So just sticking with Craig, that conversation or that mantra that you guys had that let's just have fun, let's go on an adventure. Was that explicit? Like, did you two sit down and go, fuck the money, we just want to nail down having fun for as long as we can and the rest will come? No. Look, I mean, Craig and I met on the dance floor of an outdoor party. So there was a bit <laughs> implicit. But, you know, credit to him, before, before we met, he had a really high-powered job. I mean, Craig was an, an unbelievably talented engineer, probably the best I've ever met. He had an incredible job, earning a huge salary, and he met me and within a few weeks, he'd given me or Quirk his life savings and we were together. And so we never actually sat down. No, we definitely wanted to make money. There's no doubt about that. The explicit desire was to build a good business. <laughs> but implicitly, at least during that time frame, I mean, if I was sitting here now at the age of 42 in that position, we would not be sitting here. But at least during that time frame, 
we kind of knew that we were there for the long run. And so if, if we didn't make it big today, it wasn't going to be a huge thing. Yeah, that, that makes sense to me. And in those early years, I mean, you said 99-ish, you started the business, five to seven years was a constant near-death experience. How are you, because I know that you believe quite deeply in getting the right talent into your businesses. While you're constantly at death's doorstep, how are you recruiting the best of the best? Like, how do you do that when you can't pay exorbitant salaries and you don't have the best clients like what were you doing to get these people in so firstly no one in no one from the outside knew that the inside didn't make any money <laughs> but i i think <laughs> more than anything nick we, we we sold and the staff that we hired in the beginning they were all young they we we had an incredible culture truly incredible i mean in particularly around kind of 2010 once we'd exploded to a few hundred people we were often called a cult because our culture was so tight and that's actually so many of our, our hires came from friends who worked in the business who brought their friends in and certainly until we got to like 30 40 people that was almost entirely the case and our first office outside of my lounge was 450 square meters with three desks and a huge hole in the wall and people would either walk in and say these guys are idiots or they walk in and say these guys have got vision and those that thought the second thing would stay whether they were staff or clients i mean i remember inviting the first client to that setup and we bought our, our furniture at a police auction and our boardroom table was literally a beer crate. And, and I was so nervous and he digged it. But a different client could have said, hey, that's not for us. We, we want something a bit more fancy. Yeah, and I mean, that's an accidental discovery that was fortunate because, and the discovery uh, that I'm interpreting here is that the kind of environment you build attracts the kind of clients you want or vice versa. It could have gone the other way for you quite dramatically. Like you could have invited people into this crazy Rob's cult and they would have gone, oh, this is a bit too much for me. I'm going to go find a normal, a normal business. Yes, but I think we were doing cool stuff. We were cool people. So I, I don't think that was, that was going to happen. We were in also in such a hot and happening space. I mean, we were, depending how you look at it, but certainly one of the first in, in, the, in South Africa doing what we did. And so if you wanted to be in that space and work with cool people for a period, we were the place to go. That's an interesting point is you were in a cool space. I mean, I remember this period vividly myself. I started blogging. WordPress came out around 2002. Did you think that it would be hard because you picked a hot space? I mean, like you're a smart no, guy. No, I thought that, you I thought that would be easy. Really? So you thought the, e yeah. the easier was the hotter because you had the vision. Everybody else would jump in with you. I mean, I guess... Uh, I'd love to give you a, a clever answer there, Nick, but the truth is I didn't think any of that. I was young, it looked exciting, and off we went. They really, when we started Quick, it was actually my birthday, my 20th birthday, late in the early hours of the morning. I realized that I, I, I had already promised myself that I wouldn't work for anyone else again after I had a bad waiting experience. And, and I just said to myself, I'm going to start a business. And I looked over and there was my cat, her name was Quirk. There we go. And, and the next day I figured out what we're going to do. So the, when I say no plan, there literally was no plan. And so, you know, it's all I can say. We had this great strategy that attracted people. And actually, we were just having fun and with great people doing exciting things. Understand. So now I want to jump to Keto and I want to understand that meeting. So you have no money, you have staff, you have to pay, you are on death's doorstep. And then you what, you just cold call the keto office and go, hey, we'd like to pitch you? No, but let me tell you about the worst marketing campaign of all time. So again, <laughs> from drawn from the barrels of desperation, I thought we need to generate some leads. 
So I remember clearly taking my Epson digital camera, uh, which was pretty hot back then. This was probably <laughs> 2002. And going to every shopping center in the Western Cape and taking a photo of the board of shops. They have a list of shops. And from that, from those lists, I just didn't want to write them down. That's why I remember my Epson camera. We, actually, my, my sister and I did this together. We did some, we split the shopping centers up. We then created a list and, uh, and I created a one page form letter and it was specifically one page because I couldn't afford to print two. And we had a thousand shops and we figured out the name. I, for most, we figured out the name of the owner of the shop and for others, it was dear tenant. And we hand delivered a thousand letters to a thousand shops. And from that, we got two clients. The first was Callahan, which was like it is upmarket ladies retailer. And we sent about 14 rands 50 worth of SMS messages for them and, and made no money. By total coincidence, 20 years later, that person's my neighbor. And then Kido, <laughs> and, and I didn't call, call him or anything. He, he got this in one of his shops. It ended up at head office. He then told me he threw it in the bin. And it sat in the bin. And luckily, no one emptied that bin, Nick. Because a few days later, he thought, mm, we need a website, remembered my letter, pulled it out the dustbin and called me up. So how about that? Um, it's not actually the worst marketing campaign of all time. Our first marketing campaign was printing 110,000 flyers, each kind of the size of a cell phone. Again, the number and the size comes down to my economic calculations of not having enough money. What's Which like I the best love. But then once you end up with 110,000 flyers, then you say, what am I going to do with these? And uh, I ended up paying a bunch of people to distribute them into sewers around the city and got no leads from that campaign. So I don't recommend flyers. Uh, and I mean, that's a funny one. And, and what I love about that is it's a sign of the times that you were transitioning to help people build websites and telling them that by sending them flyers. flyers. And, and the ironic part is you're not the only person I've heard of doing this. Uh, a very, very good friend of mine was running a web design company around the same time in Cape Town and also decided all the businesses on Cape Town's main business strip, the dirty burger places, the pubs, the clubs, the bars, all needed websites. And the best way to do that was to print out flyers and leave them on the cars in front of those stores. All they did was cause a lot of um, trash and didn't get a single lead from something like 6,000 flyers. That was their last 5,000 rand and they had to Boom. almost close the business. So it's a fi funny sign of the times. Can you believe people used to do flyer marketing? I mean, from Mr. Stokes at Quirk, that must, that's a thing, right? Flyers. Like when, you, when you're desperate and young, you try anything. So just to finish off the keto thing before you get onto the red and yellow story, you got this phone call from Mr. Keto and yeah, from David Robertson. David Robertson. Said, and I've got your letter. Can you come and see me? And you were like, fuck yes, I can. We've got this in the bag. And you went and pitched him or did you have them around to your crazy office? Oh, no, no, or? I definitely, I always went in the early days, always go to the client if you can. No, I mean, obviously Why? you phoned and I said, I don't really have time. We're quite busy, but maybe I can pop out <laughs> and see you in half an hour. And the, yeah, we, we went through and we turned that proposal around quicker than you can ever imagine. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, the quote for that site, 2002, was 70,000 rand. We built a site that today you'd probably pay 10 million rand for. I mean, this thing was unbelievable because we just wanted to over-deliver. It could do multiple languages before that was even possible. I mean, we over-built that website like you won't believe. But he was a client for many, many years. It worked out for me. And 
I suppose that is one of the joys, and I've experienced this too in a co-founder, of having an exceptionally gifted co-founder where you can over-deliver so dramatically that you blow your competitors out of the water. It really is something to behold when you have a technical co-founder like that. And I know that you're like me, just enough code to be dangerous. Um, so, well, maybe now that's actually changed. You might be uh, significantly no. more proficient. Okay, good. So so I've also always, my whole life, looked for co-founders who were exceptional at the shit that I was bad at and that yeah. just reminds me one more question about craig and it's not actually about craig do you feel like most co-founder relationships should be for lack of a better word antagonistic in skill set not complementary yes i mean yeah there, there is complementary is kind of pointless so there's a david ogilvy quote that i've used a million times with craig which is if two partners in a business relationship agree on everything one of them is unnecessary and I would literally walk into Craig's office every day and say, Craig, I've got an idea. And he'd like roll his eyes wanting to be in the coding <laughs> flow zone. And I'd tell him my idea and he'd give me an extremely good reason why it was a terrible idea. And I'd leave his office with my tail between my legs. But on the odd occasion when I walked in there and said, Craig, I've got an idea. And I landed on him and he said, hey, there's something there. Then that was a good idea because if he agreed. So it, it, was a, it, it still is actually a great, a great relationship. I still learned from him. That's amazing. Okay, so now tell me uh, how it finished off with Quirk and yourself, because that business well, I'll tell you, was I've, I've got two South African stalwarts. Okay. Yeah, so, so my, my next near-death experience, Nick, then, is then we started growing. So in about 2007, when Facebook kicked off to 2010, we, we actually doubled in size every year, people-wise, from the 2000s. But that's when that started to get scary exponential. And we, we probably, I don't I can't remember the exact numbers, but we were probably, you know, 20 to 30 people in 2005 and 250 people by 2010. So it was, it was quite a significant jump. And we were constantly in a cash flow crisis. So it was very different to the previous near-death experience because we had a lot of money coming in, but we were burning cash, hiring people, trying to grow. And I remember getting a piece of advice from Brent Shahim, who at the time ran Aqua Online and uh, a, a very measured business person. And he said to me in 2007, I'll never forget this, we were at the WPP, first WPP stream event in Mykonos. And he said to me, he was asking me some questions about the business, and they were a few years ahead of us size-wise. And he said to me, when you hit 50 people, you suddenly need middle management that you can't afford. And that didn't really sink in until about a year later, and it felt like his words just came to pass, because it, it is so true. And you, until 40, 50 people, everyone reported into me, which is obviously a huge error. And then you, you start to break that up, and, and you, I, you know, I had a few competent lieutenants around me, but they were kind of my senior exco. I now needed to put in that middle layer, and we just couldn't afford to hire the people we needed. And so there was quite a lot of pain for two years. People pain and, and making mistakes, losing good people because they weren't well managed. People do leave bad managers. They don't tend, tend to leave good companies. And often the bosses got paid late. And we were starting to earn decent salaries, certainly not market-related salaries. That was still took a few years. But we were getting decent salaries, and we got paid both, both, both months. But my ex-go knew that they got paid last. And, and it wasn't the same kind of pain as those first five years, but the second five years at sometimes were more stressful because when you're five days from the end of the month and you can't pay 150 salaries, that's much harder to pull out of or, or to solve quickly. We always did solve it, thank goodness. Um, but nevertheless, that, that was quite stressful. So I, I, I thought I'd raise it because it's a diff totally different type of uh, experience. It wasn't we have no money coming in. We've got so much money coming in that we need to grow, but we actually need to grow faster than the money that's coming in. And, and then that middle management layer, which was a real challenge. 
Yeah, it's an interesting thing that most, I think, smaller and younger entrepreneurs and businesses that are small keep thinking to themselves, if I could just get bigger, these problems would go away. If I can just earn a little bit more money, then I won't have this cash crunch. The truth is, mm. the bigger the business, the bigger the problems. Like yeah. cash flow, whether you're Walmart or whether you're a two-person business, cash flow is still king and you still have to manage the in and the out of it. So, yeah, I think it's, it's a complicated issue. And Nick, I think something that I didn't see is I, I was actually always, I still am in some respects, I just don't care that much about the money. I always said that we choose growth over profit and we did. But I realized in hindsight that profit is actually a culture and changing your culture from we don't care about profit to we need to make some profit because actually you need profit to survive. I'm part of a business now that actually chooses to be a social impact organization, but we run as a business it's called the Knowledge Trust. I'm, I'm the non-executive chairman and we don't pay dividends, but our goal is to make a 10% margin because 5% is too risky and 15% is greedy. So if we make it's about bringing education to young people throughout Africa. If we make a, a profit above 10%, we'll just offer bursaries. But anything lower than that, you know, we want to be sustainable for a thousand years and not rely on, on grants and, and external funders, or we could just become a nonprofit. And so I, I learned through Quirk that you can't switch that culture so easily. And, and if you don't have a culture of profit, then you won't create one. And in an agency of culture of profit, there's huge cost overruns that you can experience in an agency and if you don't have the culture of managing processes and managing systems it's, it's almost impossible to retrofit that just to comment on this rob is in this woke world that we live in profit has become synonymous with greed and it isn't those two things are not the same it's okay to have a business that is profitable and that isn't greedy because the truth is in a capitalist society Profit drives businesses, and without it, mm. there is no business. So I've been in so many businesses where the founders are like, oh, we're all about purpose. And I'm like, okay, but what about profit? Like, how are you going to survive and pay salaries with purpose? You can't eat purpose. So I do yeah. appreciate that what you've said is important. There is a culture that you have to breed where people understand that there's a difference between being greedy, being non-profit, and making some money so you can sustain yourself for a thousand years. I think it's such a pertinent point. Mm. Mm. Harder. I want to understand how you overcame that middle management problem. So we just pushed I, our way through it, and eventually so you just managed to hire more the clients, people. more profits, more people. Yeah, yeah. You know, this uh, I actually only realized this in hindsight. There's like this Goldilocks zone with the business where you die. So you either want to be really small or really big, but if you sit in the middle, that's where you die. And there's actually quite a few businesses that are in that category. I, I, I met a chap last week who runs this um, brewery in, in Nordhook. They're called Ager or something like that. I'm not sure if I pronounce it correctly. And this guy's got a really interesting set of products, one of which is a, is a wine beer. I'm not sure what to call it, but it's literally 51% beer, 49% wine. I'm not even sure I like it, but we both agreed that it was novel enough. And I was with a bunch of entrepreneurs. was actually with my EO Entrepreneurs Organization Forum. And we all agreed that, that Americans would buy a few million bottles of this product just because it's novel and it, it is actually beer. But he, at the moment, this entrepreneur, you can only buy his beer on premise. And initially I thought this was short-sighted. And then when I started to unpack the business model, I realized it's one of these businesses. So on premise, he can control everything. If you want to now play in the beer game against AB InBev, you need scale. And as soon as you try and play that game, but don't get the scale, you go out of business. Because now you've got to be playing price and distribution with, with people who've been doing it you know, for much longer than you ever will. And you don't have any of the economies of scale. So I was pushing this chap to grow, but actually he needs to kind of stay where he is until he can really rocket through that middle phase. 
And Quirk didn't rocket through it. We we kind of grunted our way through it, but we did get through it eventually. We never actually raised any money outside money as a as a as a company. So that was kind of the only choice that we had. And I think also luckily the 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 senior folks were okay to not get paid for a few months. So I would often say we need to hire this person who's super expensive. And my ex girl would say, that's ridiculous, we can't afford it. And I would just say, I, I risk my salary. I did that 10 times at least. Because I, I didn't mind that I would not get paid. And I, you know, I didn't have any kids or family or anything like that. And I knew if it all went bad, my mom would give me a bed and a bowl of soup. And so to say, right, let's hire one of the people we both know, Spratty, when I hired him, he was a significant hire. Uh, the, probably the most expensive person we'd ever hired by double. And I think the only way I could get my ex go to, to agree to it uh, without just bullying them was to, to put my own salary at risk. And that definitely provided a, a, a nice little risk buffer for those decisions. And my last question on the Quirk thing is related to you specifically as the founder CEO for many, many, many years. In this particular period, the thing that I want to focus on here is you went from 50 people reporting directly to you, which we both agree was probably a mistake, to an exco, a middle level of management. So my question is, how did you scale yourself to scope to cope with this growth? Because you must have done a shitload of personal work to get from a founder of two people to a CEO of four or 500. Yeah, I mean, Nick, as anyone who knows me well will tell you, I'm the most curious person you ever meet in your life. So I'm not very bright. And I'm not actually that hardworking, but I love learning stuff. I don't see learning as work. So I, I've read good to great probably 10 times. And so I look at things like that. And one thing that always resonates with me in good to great is, is how the exco needs to fight a lot and love each other. And that was my exco. I mean, we had epic battles, but we loved each other. We really did. I mean, we leave that exco having all shouted at each other, sweat flying across the room, and we go out and hug each other and have drinks. And... That makes an incredible organization. So we just kind of fought our way through that, but with, with such love and respect for that top team. And we're still, all of us, still very, very close. And I think it's a key reason why we managed to push through that, because if I had uh, weak people around me, we would have failed. But I, I, I was quite lucky to be able to surround myself with people who in their disciplines were just so much better than I could ever have been. And I'll tell you another thing on that topic, Nick. I, I did that Thomas International Disc analysis in about 2006, 7, 8, somewhere around there. And I got the results and they were quite shocking about how weak and pathetic I was. And I literally stuck this report in the cupboard for about a month or two. And then I thought, oh, I better do something about this. And I got it out. And one of the things I went and did was I signed up at the GSB and I started taking finance and HR courses because even though I'd done that stuff in business science, I don't love it that much. And so I probably wasn't listening. Anyway, I mean, I started these courses and within a few months, I realized I don't want to do these courses. And that's when I really embraced the concept of hire you for your weaknesses. And I, I'm a huge believer in the Clifton Strength evaluation because I think you get a much better return on investment by investing time in, in improving strengths than fixing weaknesses. So I, from a financial perspective, I, I can read a set of financial statements quite well, actually, and then I'll find holes that most people will miss. But if you actually ask me to draw up a cash flow statement from scratch, I wouldn't even know where to begin. And I just realized at a point, I don't find a really competent person who would do it better than no matter how, many time, how much I learn, they'll do better than me. And let me stick to, I think in the words of Mark Lamberti, I must do what only I can do best. And I very quickly pigeonholed myself in, in that respect and my team supported that approach and, and that took us very far.
fairness, it is an exceptionally difficult thing to do as a founder who has to be a jack of all trades to then shifting to, okay, this is what I'm a master at, forget about everything else. Because in the early days of Quirk, you were the accounts person, the HR person, the web design person, the pitching person, the salesperson, and yeah. then you had to go, whoa, okay, let me just hand off all of the stuff and focus on the thing that I do best. Rob, that was riveting. Thank you. Now you want to tell us about Red and Yellow. Well, one, one more Quirk story. So the, the last oh, year experience, which was predicted. So we, we sold Quirk in 2014, but the deal process was about 18 months and it was pretty grueling. And so I, I went and sought advice from a lot of really smart people during that time. And, and, I, and I just got some incredible feedback. And, and one thing I got from everyone was that beware you'll get distracted from the deal, during the deal. And we did. And you, in that 18 months, the market underneath us actually changed quite materially and I wasn't focused and that was my job. I wasn't focused on the market, I was focused on the deal. And so about three months before we actually closed the deal, we did a, a round of retrenchments, which I think probably the only formal round we ever did, it was about 22 people. It was exactly 22 people, I remember each name. And it was heartbreaking and I kind of swore to myself, I'm never gonna go through it. And that came down to taking the eye off the ball, but also again, not having that culture of profit. The year before that, we'd made a tremendous profit and then kind of slumped back to old habits. Uh, and I realized in hindsight, that tremendous profit was the outlier, not the changing of culture. So it, I, I, I now give that advice to anyone trying to sell their business or in the process of doing a corporate transaction is that it's extremely distracting and people will tell you that and you won't listen and then you get caught up like I did. Yeah, the only thing I've had in similar in my career is I tell founders that when you're raising funding, it is 70 to 80% of the CEO's job. You need to actually have an operations person running the company while you're raising funding because it's a 12-month process and you get distracted and you get bored and then your numbers start to drop and then you become a less enticing prospect to the people you're raising money from because your numbers start to drop. So it is a full-time job selling and raising. Really interesting. Thanks, Rob, for, for sharing those three stories. You so are let me jump onto Red and Yellow. Vulnerable. Yeah, let's do it. Yeah, <laughs> the first Red and Yellow near-death experience was quite a shock. It was early January 2016 when, when Andrew, another long-time business partner of mine, who was also Quirk and now then at that time at Red and Yellow, we, we bought Red and Yellow in 2012 when we were Quirk, but we didn't sell it. And he phoned me, I think it was the 4th of January, and he phoned me to say that Louise, 4th of January 2016, Louisa, who was our finance director, had in fact faked her cancer, which we all thought she had and felt really sorry for her, and she had stolen all of our money. He'd obviously had kind of three or four hours to process this before phoning me, but I remember just feeling absolutely sickened. Uh, and it was a lot of money. I mean, the, he, she took everything. And yeah, I mean, we, I then had to get stuck. I, I, I had left Quirk by then, just left Quirk. I wasn't planning to go into Red and Yellow full time, but I, I had to bail it out financially. And so really got stuck in there and, and built a great team who took that business forward. But for a good two years, it was serious pain because Louisa cleaned us up in the most conniving way you could possibly imagine. I mean, she faked ovarian cancer. And as we were informed afterwards, purely because no one asks about ovarian cancer. So it's a very easy topic to dodge. I mean, and also, yeah, she, she, can you imagine the kind of boss you'd be if someone says, hey, I've got ovarian cancer and you're like, prove it. Exactly. Which turns out like, every time she was having radiation, she was literally on the beach in Zanzibar. True story. So no. it was just, it was awful. And that will never happen to me again. <laughs> I've <touched laughs> too many people in the process there. And look, I don't think anyone on, on our side did anything malicious, 
but a lot of people were very naive and ill-disciplined in we, we had multiple sign-offs on bank accounts but they were just signed without thought because you and trust the people I, you you hire right exactly exactly so yeah that wasn't great but we pulled away out of that and then the last near-death experience Nick, also at red and yellow started march 2020 when red and yellow uh, at the time anyway i'm not involved there anymore kind of had three buckets of revenue full-time online and corporate and in March 2020, thankfully, full-time had started and, and, and the, the fees had been paid but by and large. But corporate and online literally went to zero at the start of COVID. And we were, if you recall, we were going to lock down for two weeks to flatten the curve. Uh, and I thought, okay, it'll be okay, two weeks. And then two weeks became six weeks. I mean, it's almost two years later, we're still sitting in a state of emergency, but I think that speaks more to the competency and, and corrupt nature of our government than anything else. But that, that was the first time out of all those five experiences where I actually was scared. So before that, I was embarrassed more than scared but to go to an ex member or a member of staff to say, I'm going to pay you late. It's awful. But I always did right by them. Everyone was always paid. But now I was in the situation where I thought, and bear in mind that at the time, anyway, the full-time revenue was a lost leader. So we needed those other two buckets to pay the full-time lecturers and staff and rent. And in my head, I thought, I'm going to get to kind of September, October, and I'm going to have to tell a few hundred students and their parents that their education has been wasted. And that filled me with fear and actually ended up being the catalyst that saw us sell red and yellow. And interestingly, by the time we closed that transaction, which was probably eight months later, red and yellow was having its best year ever. Because that particularly the online stuff, once COVID, call it two or three months had passed, the online stuff absolutely took off. But looking down that, that barrel of the gun, as it were, made me realize that I was at a stage in my life when I didn't want to take that level of responsibility. I don't mind risk if it's my, if it's my stuff that's being risked, but I, I didn't feel right taking risks with, with a youngster's education, which is one of the things in this world I care the most about. And so when the opportunity uh, came, we, we were offered an incredible deal and we took it. But that was the closest I've ever felt to death and, and so filled with fear. I mean, the, 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 I had many sleepless nights, as I know, did a few of my team because the thought again of phoning a student and their parents and saying we can't afford to pay our lectures is just sickening. And aside from the which I, I resonate with uh, running my slow fund and giving people money to start their businesses for the last 12 months I now resonate with that idea that you're helping people do something with their lives that they didn't think they could do before. So aside from that though was it the fact that COVID was an external variable that you, Rob, couldn't control because at Quirk, yeah. basically everything was Rob's. It was the cult of Rob. You could control and maneuver a lot of things. This was, you're fucked and there's nothing you can do about it. Yeah, I, th I think that is. I mean, yeah, outside of my control is a good way of looking at it. I, I've always felt, I, I'm, an, I'm an ever an optimist. I just believe that I, I can get anything if I work hard enough. And I always felt that I could work through any problem, irrespective of the nature of it. But here was totally out of my control. And that, yeah, that did leave me feeling quite scared. And we glanced over it because I was in a little bit of shock about the ovarian cancer. But let's just quickly have a couple of questions that I have, and I'm sure my listeners will have. What the hell was that? How on earth... Did you find out that this woman had stolen all of your money? Did she do a runner? Was it the point was like, okay, now the gig is oh, up yeah, she, and we're now yeah. done? Yeah, so she did do a runner. She she operated within an 11-month and 20-something day cycle. So she was literally within the financial year, so she didn't get audited. And and Andrew, who's kind of our, our finance and legal partner, and Debbie, who's in HR, uh, 
they were sitting, talking and discussing what to do about Louisa because her absenteeism was so bad because of the cancer. And the way they described it to me, they were talking across the table and suddenly pennies started to drop in their heads and they kind of both went quiet looking at each other. And as Andrew just said, he just got sicker and sicker and sick, started making phone calls and then realized it was all a scam. And did, I mean, I have to ask this, did she get away with it? Yeah, yeah, she's gone, gone. I mean, we, we found it afterwards, I mean, this whole Zanzibar thing, and she was sending gold to the Cayman Islands. She'd been practicing my signature, as, as well as two other CEO signatures, before she even started. So she had that is chosen us. She had chosen us. And they, I mean, you, I, there's, I hate saying this out loud, but there's a part of me that kind of respects that level of ingenuity um, and oh, determination. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if, I mean, yeah, if you want to produce a movie, it's this lady. She had it. And I mean, I remember the one um, Exco meeting. I feel really bad about this, actually. We were there with the CEO of Red and Yellow at the time. I never was the CEO. Um, and I can't actually remember exactly what happened, but, but something happened. And this, 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 this Louisa, the FD, threw the CEO under the bus and I took the FD side thinking this, this, the CEO hasn't you know, done her job. I can't remember the exact incident. And, and I feel terrible about that because it was a total scam. I mean, she, she, she faked emails, everything you can possibly imagine. I mean, the bank account she was sending the money to was actually a, an, an identical account to one of our suppliers except with an extra letter. Um, so very difficult to pick up, but we should have picked it up. There's no doubt about that. And I think as someone said to me, that we, were, we worked with ENS forensic people, and they, they, they said a couple of things, one of which she chose her cancer intentionally because it's, it's, it's difficult, but that she chose red and yellow because we were big enough to have something worth stealing, but small enough not to have the controls of a standard bank in place. And that's spot on. It's exactly the case. That's just amazing. Okay, Rob, in closing, any closing words, thoughts, and then tell people where they can find you, follow you, and buy anything that you're selling at the moment. I'm not selling anything, um, but my closing thoughts would be, I just love, I love entrepreneurs. I think that the government should get out the way and entrepreneurs will fix everything. And, and my best advice is tenacity. Be curious, keep learning, but just stick in it because there's so many moments where you want to give up. And look, sometimes you should give up. I mean, and I think part of the art is knowing when to give up. I, I've invested in another business where we just gave up and it was the right thing to do. Heartbreaking, money in the toilet, but heartbreaking, but the right thing to do. And it's mostly not the right time to give up, but if it is, do it. But if it's not definitely the right time, and only you will know that, just keep going, keep going, keep going, park the money, just treat your people well, listen to your customers and keep pushing, keep pushing because it's, I've, I've started and been involved with 10, 20, 30 businesses in my time. That's been a universal thing for all of them. They're all harder than you think. Without, without, we're also misguided by these examples of businesses that we hear, which feel like they started, there was an open goal, they kicked an open goal and they won a billion dollars. That's what it seems like from the outside. That's not what happened. That maybe does happen occasionally, but you don't hear about the, the other 99 out of 100 that failed and failed big. And so you're probably in the, in the category of just need to push hard. So that's my, my best Rob, advice to give. And I think that is fantastic advice. And uh, knowing you for as long as I've known you, I'm very glad to say that I have no doubt that for you, it's not over. Thanks, Nick. Thanks for having me and, and good luck to all your listeners. I hope all of your businesses succeed. Me too.